Hi everyone, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry, and back with me today, I've got Jessica and Hugh from the Somex team. Jess, Hugh, how have your weeks been? Uh, my week has been a week of two halves. So last week, James, Bell, and I were in Malta for MedTech World, um, which, if you didn't know, we won an award, which is exciting. Um, and then James and I stayed for a bit of a holiday. Uh, which culminated in gale force winds, torrential rain, and most excitingly of all, an actual earthquake. And not even just like a bit of a wobble. I'm exaggerating. It was interesting. It was like being inside a quite a violent tumble dryer. (laughs) Is that your first earthquake? My first earthquake, yeah. And then, yeah, everyone went merrily on with their days. Maybe it's a regular thing over in Gozo and Malta. Who knows? Um, But, so that happened and then obviously we're back and been excited to see the team, talk about all the fun stuff that happened at MedTech World, which there was a lot. We had a great time. And if you haven't seen LinkedIn, seen that is awry with posts about how amazing it was, then get to know and make sure you get to give it next year because it was so good. All right. Shall we crack on with some news? So this week's first story comes to us from kentonline.co.uk, first appearance for them. And the headline is probably my favourite headline uh, that I've ever got into Pigeon. Uh, Thanks to Hugh for finding this one for us. Joke telling vacuum robot under fire at Darrant Valley Hospital in Dartford. Hugh, who is the robot and what's it been doing? This is the Kent Hospital Trust that has introduced a vacuum cleaner that is really sassy and speaks in what someone describes in the article as an anime-style voice sassily telling people to get out of the way. In terms of what you can spend your money on, on technology and health, this isn't sort of the thing that normally comes to mind. Um, It's come under a lot of criticism for both the out-of-place aspects of its uh, joke-telling in a hospital and also the quality of its work. Uh, which apparently someone has to follow it around with a hoover in order to make sure that things actually stay clean. Um, the company, that the, the outsourcing company that's brought this vacuum cleaner in has defended it heavily, says it does an excellent job. Uh, there's no indication that they've spent too much money, which given that it seems to be a combination between uh, Roomba technology and the robot that used to wander around the Blue Water Shopping Centre branch of Yosushi, sassily telling people to get out of the way probably means they didn't spend an awful lot on it. But I think there is a real question here of whether this is the kind of appropriate way of spending technology, um, yeah, even if it's sort of looking at about £30,000 a year contract for this, uh, plucked out of the uh, thin air, but uh, with a heavy indication that that's what it cost. That, you know, if it's not delivering, then it's probably not quite the right technology for the hospital. And when you add to that the slight inappropriateness of the the tone it takes and the quality of the work, then I think there's real questions about is this the best use of money on tech in hospitals? And I'll ask you two to answer that question. I I wonder if there's a better metaphor out there for how some health tech is implemented in the NHS than technology having to be followed by a human doing the original human process. I think that's probably, it's probably quite an apt metaphor. It's interesting though, in the week that, the Prime Minister said that uh, automation and robotics could replace a lot of the NHS workforce that this story's dropped. It seems to me that 
whilst there are some incredible robotic advances in surgery and other areas, that robotics is probably not quite the answer we think it is for um, for things like cleaning, which is a shame because it feels like a process that you could potentially automate. But if this is the quality of the robotic cleaners we have at the moment, maybe not something that needs to be rolled out across the NHS. There are a few things for me on this. First and foremost, thank you for reading all news outlets. They are just gold. <laughs> and I think they are so underrated from a very serious PR perspective. Genuinely, they have great reach and credibility, but it's just priceless. Some of the stories that you get through. And I can remember the days when I was um, working in a comms role down in Plymouth and uh, yeah, news stories about police officers having a tea break and that kind of thing. Just The other thing is, uh, well, when we were in Malta at the conference, we were hosting a stage and to our, if you're looking at the audience, to our right, there was um, a vendor for these kinds of robots. I don't know if it was a vacuum or whatever, but it was one of those ones that perhaps you can serve things off, I think. It was so annoying because it was just talking in my ear the whole time when I was trying to host a panel. So I didn't like that too much. However, what I will say is uh, we were early adopters of um robot uh, robot vacuum cleaners um had it in two flats and it was absolutely fantastic great automation um but you have to have the right environment for it i will say that ours also didn't speak so therefore didn't insult anyone um and it was probably quite a lot more cost effective than this one so i think there is a time and a place for these kinds of technologies um so yeah potentially not the best use of of spend on technology um and i think it goes to show that you need to have a really strong use case for it It needs to be the right environment and to henry's point you know if it has to be followed around by human and it's insulting people i mean that's two strikes what's the third gonna be i can only imagine that the kent hospital that um have brought this over in does not have stairs or lift of any kind because otherwise we were early adopters of Roombas too, and uh, when you had to take it upstairs and downstairs and around the house just to make sure that all the rooms got done, it sort of defied the point of having something do it for you. I found out that my co-workers are too lazy to hoover. Unbelievable. Uh, on the subject of local newspapers, I have it would be remiss of me not to shout out angry people in local newspapers, the Twitter account. It is just pictures of people in local newspapers looking angry, and it is a source of constant joy in my life. Shall we move on to story number two? Story number two comes to us from medgadget.com. And the headline is, new device measures haemoglobin more accurately in dark skin. So we know that currently methods to determine haemoglobin levels at the point of care are inaccurate in individuals with higher levels of melanin in their skin. Jess, what's the latest breakthrough on this? So for anyone who doesn't know, A pulse oximeter is that fun clip that gets stuck on the end of your finger when you go into hospital to make sure that, as Henry says, you have the right level of haemoglobin in your blood um, and ultimately you've got enough oxygen going around your body as well. And we know that with pulse oximeters and many other technologies and devices, doesn't work as well in people with darker skin as it does in people with white skin. And that is for various reasons. But the researchers at the University of Texas, in collaboration with a local biotech firm, have created a is updated, the right word probably, an updated point of care device that 
can measure hemoglobin levels much more accurately and perform pulse oximetry in people who have darker skin. And apparently, instead of using in red infrared light, which is what is usually used for pulse oximeters, it actually uses blue-green light in addition to assessing skin tone and using algorithms when calculating the hemoglobin levels and oxygen saturation. So I think this is incredibly exciting because it's a really good example of where, as I said, we know that sometimes and more often than we like to talk about, technology can exacerbate health inequalities. But this is a great example of where actually it is an enabler of health of health equality, um, health equity, and access to care. Um, and so, you know, we hear a lot about how pregnancy outcomes and birth outcomes for black women are much worse than for white women. And it's use of devices like this who, that will enable us to better track patients' metrics and patient data um, more accurately and with a much higher level of confidence that can help address some of those challenges. And obviously, it doesn't solve it completely. But, you know, this is a device that is used throughout hospitals, you know, almost irregardless of what condition you have, what ward you're on, the healthcare professional you're seeing, pretty much everyone receiving treatment in a hospital is going to have one of these stuck on the end of their hand. And so, you know, when you consider the level of uh, inaccuracy of existing devices um, across a completely diverse uh, range of people, then, you know, the potential benefits is massive, really massive. And I, for one, am excited. I agree. We talked last week when we had Rachel Murphy on the pod about, uh, we we're talking about Mentech and how um, the funding that um, Femtech really, we really need a better word for Femtech, but the funding that Femtech has been getting recently has massively surpassed that that's going into men's technology. But the main reason, one of the reasons behind that being that a lot of health tech is created either deliberately or like by design or unintentionally through bias to cater to men's needs and also ethnicity plays a huge part in health inequality so it's great to see that there is technology being built that reduces that inequality because as you say Jess there are huge huge disparities at the moment between the ways in which health tech can interact with different ethnicities so great to see Story number three comes to us from the BBC, good old auntie, and has actually been in pretty much every uh, every news outlet around the world. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes jailed for fraud. Jess, I know you're a big, big fan, not a big fan of Elizabeth Holmes, but I know you've been following this one incredibly closely. Do you want to talk us through a, a brief history of, of, uh, of Holmes and, uh, and where we are now? I am not going to go right back to the very beginning to explain the Theranos story because if you're listening to this podcast, you definitely know about it. But ultimately, Elizabeth Holmes came up with an idea for basically diagnosing disease with a few drops of blood. She managed to dupe hundreds of people for millions and millions and millions of pounds. It was a lie. The technology didn't work. They tried to adapt other companies' technology. Uh, it was rolled out into, was it Walmart? But it was rolled out into basically, you know, local pharmacies and locations where people could come in off the streets and get a diagnostic test ultimately and was misdiagnosing people, not diagnosing people, 
which has had a significant effect on on people's lives. And I hate to bring it back to uh, MedTech World again, but I hosted a panel with Tina Tan, who is executive editor of First Word Health Tech, and Steve Roost, who is CEO of PocDoc, uh, which is a company that does do biomarker testing with drop of blood. Uh, but he is also a uh, host of Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. And we basically talked through some of the biggest stories for the year and some of the big trends and predictions for next year. And ironically, it was the day before the sentence was passed. And there was a contingent of, I think, 10 of us who were actually in an Irish bar in Malta at the time that the sentence was announced as breaking news. And uh, yeah, that was an interesting place to be. It's one of those moments like, where were you Where were you when the Queen died? Or where were you when Michael Jackson yeah. died? Where were you when Elizabeth yeah. Holmes was, uh, was sentenced? Yeah, in an Irish karaoke bar. I think it was called Corks or something with all the fun people in health tech um, in between like singing along to karaoke and then having a discussion about this. Um, but ultimately, uh, she has been living since she was kind of accused of the crime she has been living a seemingly normal life has entered into a new relationship has had a baby um and i think everyone was skeptical about you know the sentence that she might receive um and the thing that actually came up on the the panel which i thought was really interesting we we talked about where the responsibility lies here in terms of, you know, do do we need better regulation? Which I think we can all agree we absolutely do for you know, medical devices, health tech devices, diagnostics, uh, software as medical device, all of those kinds of things. That that goes without saying. But Tina raised a really important point that I had not considered to a great extent previously. That she said that uh, okay, Elizabeth duped these investors. But also, like, where were these investors? Like, where was their due diligence? And and now moving forward, I mean, the market is a very, very different place now. But ultimately, there's a huge amount of responsibility with investors to do the right due diligence and make sure that the products that they are investing in, the teams they're investing in, they can do what they say they're going to do. Um, they aren't overclaiming. They have the right regulatory and compliance in place. Because ultimately, you know, companies with all of that in place and, you know, the are not going to commit fraud are going to be better investments than uh, your therapists of this world. Um, and Steve was also talking about, you know, how, you know, what PopDoc is doing differently, which is obviously not fraud. Um, they're having uh, an amazing time at the moment. They've collaborated with Novartis. The biomarker they're most focused on is um, cholesterol. And they're really focused on getting that right um, before they're moving on to anything else. Um, and obviously not overclaiming, but yeah, I think it's been a really, really intriguing story to watch. And let's see whether or not she serves 11 years. I think it's unlikely. Um, she's still apparently seemingly got some friends in high places. But I do also think there's an element of, um, you know, her being made an example of here. And I do think that that's important. The due diligence thing is a really important and interesting point, particularly in the light of FTX going uh, going under in the States last week you get these companies where everyone wants to be on the bandwagon, right? And that could, not suggesting it does, but it could lead to poor due diligence. Mm. One of the really interesting angles I read on the due diligence that was done on uh, Theranos was around the fact that 
the due diligence they did on the company itself was not necessarily bad. I think this came from Forbes. I have to double check that and post it with this uh, with this pod. The due diligence they did on the company itself was not bad, but the technology was being misrepresented and that actually, however good their due diligence was, it would have been very difficult to work out just how much that technology was being misrepresented. It's an interesting, interesting angle. And I think that a lot of very powerful people got burnt. A lot of very influential people lost a lot of money. And yeah, she's uh, she is in prison. And I think the lesson to build on both of those points is uh, no matter who else has invested in something, do your own due diligence and make sure that that it's something that you think is worth investing in as well. Because Nancy DeVos was there. I think Henry Kissinger was on the investment list. And um, Reagan or um, George Bush's most senior chief of staff advisor was also um, one of the investors. So I, I can imagine going into Razor's those are sort of three very big names that it's almost, oh, well, if they're in, we can be as well. That's interesting. Like Kissinger, especially. I read his book his book on China last year, and that is a man, that's a man who likes detail. So it's very interesting that his investment team may or may not have missed things that, um, that led to the situation we now find ourselves in with her in prison. Our next story, the prison story, digitalhealth.net have been reporting that Health Education England are launching a VR app for nurses to experience prison healthcare settings. Hugh, you wanted to chime in on this one. This is a really important use case for technology. Um, Prisons are famously not super appealing places to work. Um, It's a problem across the, the prison sector beyond just healthcare. Uh, includes prison officers and retention recruitment is a big challenge. So when it comes to getting nurses uh, and other medical professionals into the prison system, it's really important. Um, So it's great to see that this app is going to give trainees uh, an option to see what what the environment is like, um, what that they can expect to encounter when uh, when going into a prison. Uh, So really, really pleased to see this development. I think what I'd be very interested in off the back of this, uh, the uh, the article mentions um, some great pieces about showing five situations you might encounter through VR, uh, interviews with GPs who are working in that environment. And the whole point is to show that the clinic that you see in a prison is very much like the clinic you might see in any other environment as well. And I think while this is really this is a really great recruitment tool, a really great um, opportunity to show people what um, working in a prison is like, I think it is possibly a bit misleading in certain places because I think there will be there will be scenarios that people encounter in prisons that are completely different. Um, and these may not be necessarily those scenarios chosen as training, uh, as ones that are used to train. I think there are, you know, the environments in prisons, you know, we only have to look at the most recent reports from uh, inspectorate of prisons that, you know, these aren't necessarily identical um, types of clinic to those outside of prisons. So I think the kind of proof in the pudding will be, you know, is it a successful recruitment tool? And once people who go through uh, and sort of enter uh, into providing healthcare support in prisons, see that in, in for, the, for themselves in the real world after having used these tools, whether they stay, whether they can retain um, those staff in those settings will be a, a really a really interesting um, point of proof to look at you know, six months, a year down the line. Incredibly interesting. And I agree with you, I think it is 
important to prepare clinical workforces for different environments that they will be exposed to. And my friend who is actually, she's an occupational therapist and uh, working in a very busy A&E as the um, uh, team lead, I think, on rapid response. But she did a placement in prison and she said, she really enjoyed it. And she said it was incredibly illuminating. And I think it was a really good grounding in terms of shaping her practice as it is today, but also how she engages with people and ultimately people who are living in prisons that are people first and foremost. I think the other interesting thing about this is, you know, we talked earlier about health inequalities and we know that health outcomes for people in prison are a lot worse. And that is also not acceptable. And I think part of training healthcare professionals to be equipped with how to manage those situations is an important step towards addressing that as well. And I I think that there can often be this kind of narrative that, you know, people in prison should be deprioritized or, you know, it, it does their care is less important. And I think it's important to say that that is not the case. And so finding ways to ensure that they can receive the best care is critically important too. It's interesting timing. I, I, I would have maybe delayed announcing it at the moment, given, you know, the current environment with nursing strikes, etc. However, I, I think probably Health Education England see it as a way to show that they're investing in training for nurses. And therefore, it, it is, it's clearly a positive news story. I just think interesting timing. I think I think from from the angle of what we do at Somex, right, the, the timing is is very very interesting it wasn't long ago that the that paul scully the business secretary was talking to andrew marr about how the government is considering plans to to stop essential service workers including potentially nurses and nhs workers from striking and so during a nurses strike for a company to decide to put out a press release about nurses being given tours of prison just feels a little bit heavy-handed maybe unfortunate is probably the word i want to use there i will hold back on getting too deep into this because i have very passionate views on prisons um but i think there are probably sort of wider issues and i just hope that the the experiences that they're showing student nurses aren't sanitized because i think getting that stability of care for prisoners as you say jessica it's it's you know it's about making sure that those health needs are met and they're probably not going to be met if they're being shown possibly a sanitised view of what what the experience is like. Which it may not be, by the way. We've not seen it. So we can't pass judgment um, and will not pass judgment. We are neutral. Okay, final story this week comes to us from Sifted, our friends at Sifted. Um, And it is from Kai Nicole Schwartz as well, who often produces excellent health tech pieces so headline this week long covid may affect 100 million people meet one of the first startups looking to help them interesting we don't understand long covid that well yet is my understanding we know there are lots and lots of people globally who are suffering from it Hugh, do you want to jump in it's picking up on that point that we don't really have the understanding and it's very hard to self-manage um long covid because it's really as a condition it's really unpredictable i know a lot of people now who 
do have it and are suffering with it and it can show signs of rapid improvement and then one day you can just find yourself way back at the beginning so um, there's a lot of challenges around chronic fatigue um, and various other aspects of the condition that come along with it so what um, visible appear to be doing is providing a sort of self-management app that uh, enables you to kind of collect information about your your heart rate your breathing patterns and various other aspects of your health and form recommendations around yeah you know, changes that you can make uh points uh, of time where you can perhaps stop exercising so vividly maybe where you should take a break maybe where you should stop move, um act- activity at the levels that you have been doing um and helping that people suffering with long covid to um, manage their condition in that way which is as you say really important uh, i think there's a couple of points here which are um, this is going to be really, if if successful, it's going to be really important for the data it collects on uh, sufferers. Uh, so users will be invited to share their data with researchers so that researchers can understand long COVID better as a condition. Then there's the, the model, which is um, we're shortly expecting to see a freemium version of the app launched. Uh, now, I think one of the points here is that there, we, you know, we don't already have a lot of information, a lot of data. So if feels like there's an aspect of this app is sort of learning as it goes along and learning about uh, your experience as you go along, which is, again, coming back to that point about the consistency or lack of consistency of uh, experiences with long COVID could be uh, could be an interesting way. And I think the, the value and the effectiveness of the app for users will be dependent on how well it balances and kind of acknowledges that inconsistency and helps people understand the condition better. I think just from a just from an investment side, it's important to say they've raised uh, they've raised a million million dollars in a pre-seed, but their investors are incredibly impressive. So you've got Octopus in there, whose health track record is fantastic, Biofidelity, Mindstep, Big Health, um, and you've also got Hustle Fund, who I have to admit I don't know much about because they're US based and I've not delved into that. But Calm Storm as well, so places like Otto, um, 9 AM Health, uh, Bilaba, like really, really impressive VCs with great portfolios um, are putting money behind this. So there's A, they clearly see an opportunity in the market there. And B, there's clearly the opportunity to help a huge number of people globally. Very interesting stories this week. Very varied. Not often we get to talk about prison either, which is always nice. Thanks a lot for joining us this week. That was the Health Tech Pigeon team analysing the health tech news so you don't have to. Join us next week and check out all of the articles we talked about and some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com.